Hello, thank you for listening to an episode of our Valiant Voices conversation series. I am Cheryl Thomas, the founder and executive director of Global Rights for Women, a nonprofit located in Minneapolis, Minnesota, working to end gender-based violence around the world. This episode was recorded on a Zoom webinar. If you would like to attend the next one live, please visit our website, globalrightsforwomen.org front slash Valiant Voices to sign up. Thank you and enjoy listening to our series. So we'll just go ahead and get started. I want to say thank you to all of you for joining us today for our Valiant Voices conversation series. We are so glad you could join us. I'd like to start today's session with a land acknowledgement. So at Global Rights for Women, we gratefully acknowledge the indigenous people of the lands we're on today. Even though we're meeting in a virtual space, it's important for us to recognize that we have and continue to benefit from the theft and occupation of this land since even before the United States was formed as a nation. Global Rights for Women is located in Minneapolis, Minnesota with staff throughout the state and we acknowledge that we are on Dakota and Anishinaabe land. We recognize the historic discrimination and violence that has been inflicted upon Indigenous people globally. Additionally, we understand that the treatment of Indigenous women is a byproduct of colonialism, racism, and misogyny that has perpetuated the continued sexual abuse, disappearance, and murder of Indigenous women here in Minnesota and around the world. So please join us now in a moment of reflection to acknowledge the harm of the past and present, and to consider how you can join the effort to dismantle the oppression of indigenous communities and restore justice. And also, since people are joining here from around the world, at this time, if you would like to put in the chat the land that you are acknowledging, we would greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. I just wanna say we are so grateful that you all have come to Global Rights for Women's Conversation Series, Valiant Voices. I am Nazifa Zirzada, my pronouns are she, her, and I'll be today's moderator. I'm also the program manager at Global Rights for Women, an organization with the mission to end domestic and sexual violence around the world. Valiant Voices is actually a conversation series we started that features the human rights advocates and survivors who are addressing injustice and disrupting oppressive systems that cause harm. These are the stories of powerful leaders creating change in their communities and around the world. I also wanna let you all know that we're live streaming on Facebook today. So we welcome your comments there or here on Zoom in the chat. After the conversation, we'll be sending out a link with the recording for you all. I am so pleased and honored to introduce our panelists to you today. I'll start with Alessandra Gribaldo. She is an associate professor of cultural anthropology at Roma Trey University. Over the past 10 years, Alessandra has been involved in a number of collaborative research projects with the ethnographic analysis of contemporary Italian society, including low fertility, women's safety, and right to justice, migration, reproduction, and identity. She has recently published Unexpected Subjects, Intimate Partner Violence, Testimony, and the Law, an ethnography of the encounter between women's words and the demands of the law in the context of adjudications on intimate partner violence. We are also so grateful to be joined by Alison Murray, 
As she said in her bio, she didn't aspire to be a domestic violence spokesperson or advocate or victim. She's a mother of five and a woman who loved her husband and loved her life until something went horribly wrong in the marriage. Now Allison is divorced and her ex-husband is serving a 20 year sentence for attempted murder. She's telling her story to help other women acknowledge to themselves when something is wrong in their relationships, to find their voices and to get help. Allison wants women to understand that no one has the right to control them or hurt them. In Melissa Skye's position as Director of International Training at Global Rights for Women, she also brings a wealth of experience as the former Executive Director of Domestic Abuse Intervention Programs, also known as the Duluth Model. She was the Executive Director of Advocates for Family Peace for 17 years, a local domestic violence advocacy program. She has also led and organized two coordinated community responses to address domestic violence in Minnesota, as well as co-facilitating groups for men who batter and women who use violence. As a qualified expert in the state of Minnesota, she also testifies as an expert witness on domestic violence in criminal court cases. Once again, thank you all so much for joining us. I'd like to take a moment to set the context for today's conversation. For every case of gender-based violence, so many cases go unreported, partly because testifying is difficult. Women face a multitude of challenges to access justice, especially related to their economic status, need for evidence, and the trauma of testifying in court. All of these things often result in lack of punishment or imputing for perpetrators and further traumatization around reporting and court proceedings. As an organization, Global Rights for Women seeks to change these dynamics and allow women to access justice. I'm so grateful for our guests today who will talk about a very pressing and nuanced topic. I'd love to start with you, Alessandra. Your book, Unexpected Subjects, is truly so enlightening and so well-researched, and I think one of the few books out there really examining women's experiences within the judicial system. As you were writing it, I know you mentioned to me that you spent one year in the courts in Italy researching and documenting the experience of women in gender-based violence cases. What you learned is that so often the character of the woman is what was really on trial, that her decisions are questioned rather, rather than the crime she experienced. And this was because many women feel love for their abusers, men they've been in relationships with or are the fathers of their children. And this is often held against them as bad judgment rather than he should not be abusing. For this reason, women are considered culpable in the violence that happened to them or that they don't deserve justice. We know that this is a global problem. From your perspective, what needs to change so that women can receive the justice that they deserve? Thank you. Thank you, Nazifa, for your words and to Violent Voices for the invitation to this dialogue. And um, to answer your question, I would uh, focus on the issue of intimacy. So there is a judgment. Uh, women during trials on domestic violence are considered culpable, as you said, for the situation where uh, they live and they've been experiencing, uh, which is based on different reasons. And in my perspective, the main issue is that violence occurs within an intimate relationship. And by intimate, we mean not only uh, affection and feelings, but also dependence. Uh, so, for example, 
the economic status or the fact of having um, shared part of life with the perpetrator, so the management uh, of uh, children. Um, nonetheless, if the uh, issues related to economics and the custody of children can be more easily um, acknowledged and managed by the law, what remains problematic is love and intimacy uh, itself. And this is what I mainly found during the hearings I have attended during the research. Um, what love has got to do with it? We often hear this sentence as a sort of slogan against uh, uh, intimate partner violence, but we all know that love and affection has a lot to do with it. Uh, that uh, um, uh, ambivalence is very common and the fact that uh, uh, being firm and perfectly consequential regarding a person charging against the perpetrator is not common. The contrary is physiological, we might say. Uh, in the cases of uh, testimonies of domestic violence uh, that I have the opportunity to follow, um, it is evident how the lack of recognition of the victim and the, the uh, underestimation of the violence uh, do not depend simply on attribution of irrelevance or prejudice, uh, but it has to do with the fact that the law presupposes this uh, neutral subject, and it is this perfectly coherent, autonomous subject that uh, the women victims uh, fail to correspond. Mm -hmm. So I think we can try to uh, untangle uh, evidence, gender and intimacy in the dynamics that certify domestic violence for a better understanding of the ways in which judges, professional advocates and claimants aim to, to make it, mm -hmm. to make it through the institutional system and sometimes despite the institutional system. And in this sense, I believe that ethnography and social sciences more generally must necessarily try to provide uh, instruments. And I think that to acknowledge the complexity, nuances, and negotiation does not prevent uh, an intervention, the possibility of an intervention. Uh, so it's not a question of denouncing the impossibility of justice, uh, uh, but of constantly uh, questioning justice system. So judges, especially women judges I met, uh, are aware of the complication. It is complicated to overcome and to resolve completely this encounter between law and women needs. And probably it is possible, it's impossible to resolve it completely, but what we can do is, is to try all the time to make, uh, to, to, to make our instrument, uh, um, even legal instrument, closer to the complexity of everyday life. And this awareness should be made explicit and should be shared not only within the legal context, but in social, cultural, pedagogical context as well. So I think it's important to focus on what abused women want from the law, but it may be productive as well to understand what the law wants from women. And it would be constructive to consider the relationship between law and victims of violence as an encounter between two hesitation, we may say, two difficulties. There is, uh, I believe here, a space for the construction of a path towards a, a more just system. So going back to your question, what, what needs to change for women to achieve the justice they deserve very quickly. First, the importance of uh, public debates beyond um, emergencies about gender violence and it's, uh, and, and uh, to give women the opportunities to speak when they feel like and have the strength to do that and the appropriate context 
uh, to do that. Uh, so never judging them if they cannot or prefer not to speak or if they speak out or not in the immediate of the, of the event. And so try to change the taken for granted social expectations regarding the victim and her testimony. So a dialogue, a dialogue between feminist movements, legal professionals, social scientists can be very useful. Second, it's very important to implement trainings for all professionals who deal constantly with the issue of domestic violence. Not only social workers, law enforcement, but also lawyers and magistrates. Third, last but not least, uh, the need to give voice and money to women professionals who work in the shelters, feminist shelters. We know, uh, they know very well how to manage very complicated cases, to give them counseling and safety. Um, and, uh, and the lawyers who work there have the chance, uh, if given enough attention and space, to make women's rights respected during trials. So feminist, feminism as a, as, a, as a theory and a practice, uh, I believe acts not as a simple solution, but as a productive tool that can make the difference. A stratified and often neglected collective history and experience and practice that can make the difference. And I stop here. Thank you so much, Alessandra. I really appreciate your, your response. And I think it ties so well to what we do here at Global Rights for Women. It's so important for us to shift the focus on survivors to have to seek out justice to rather how can we get the entire system responding effectively and respectfully and holistically to survivors' needs. So I'd like to turn to Melissa. In, your, in addition to your work um, as the Director of International Training here at Global Rights for Women, you're also mm -hmm. an expert witness and you're called upon in cases of domestic violence. Could you explain to us a little bit more what is the role of an expert witness and how do you see your role in terms of addressing how the system mm -hmm. is doing what it's supposed to? Yeah, so I'm an expert witness in criminal cases in Minnesota. Um, every state has different rules about, and a lot of times, uh, state Supreme Court cases about what makes an expert witness. Um, in Minnesota, I follow uh, under the category called specialized knowledge, that if you're an advocate in Minnesota that has specialized knowledge, uh, meaning a lot of experience, you've done a lot of trainings and such, you can be an expert witness in the state of Minnesota. So mostly I've testified for prosecutors, but I've also testified for a number of uh, defense cases where women um, have been on trial for either attempted murder or murder of their abusers. So I've done that a couple of times as well, where the defense is trying to make a case of self-defense. And so that's happening kind of more and more. But I'll, you know, I don't know anything about the case um, when I get asked to come. All I know is if it's an adult case, if it's a heterosexual couple, and if there's children, because that's my area of expertise is an intimate partner heterosexual cases, which and there's children between the the um, the man and the woman in the case. And so, uh, recently I testified. I got asked to testify in a case, and it was related to Allison for why Allison was here. I didn't know Allison uh, at the case. So a lot of times what happens is one of the questions I get is, do you know the victim? They say their name. In this case, it was Allison. Do you know the defendant? They say the defendant's name and I don't. And so what I'm providing is expertise and they're asking me questions, not just about physical violence, but to help the jury. So that it's like a training or a presentation and the jury is the audience essentially. And we're trying to help the jury understand 
the, um, what it's like to be a victim and why victims make the decisions they do. In Allison's case in particular, and she'll say a little bit more about this, I remember a couple of the questions that were asked. And I just wanna say also that it's not a situation always where this sort of this terminology, victims who recant, right? That's why a lot of experts come in. I testify in a lot of cases where the victims you know, do testify, and, um, but I still help to explain some things. So in Allison's case, she had been married for 25 years. And during her police statement, she had indicated that she still loved her husband. And the prosecutor knew that this would be something difficult for the jury to understand. And so I testified about why that would be and about the complexity of that. And so to help relay that to the jury. But I also testify a lot to about why victims don't call the police, maybe why the delay in a report, so my, maybe why they'll hesitate to call, why they don't call the police all the time, of course, why they stay in relationships. So I testify a lot um, in that regard. And so we get, uh, Scott Miller and I get quite a few subpoenas, but we don't get many cases where we actually testify. Most cases of domestic assault in Minnesota don't go to trial. But what we have found out as a legal strategy is that prosecutors have said that in many cases, what's happened is they found that the defendants will take a better plea because there's the threat per se of having an expert witness. So anecdotally, we've been told that. So for example, in Stearns County um, and a couple other counties now, they're putting experts on every single case. And so they're kind of submitting that as a witness and they found that as a helpful sort of strategy to get better pleas uh, going forward. So we'll let Allison say a little bit more and maybe sure she and I will have a little bit of a conversation, but I don't wanna to say too much about Allison's experience. I want her to be able to say it for herself. Thank you so much, Melissa. Yeah, it, I think it's helpful for all of us to understand that the expert witness bridges the gap, I think, between the court, the jury, and the victim. So thank you so much for showing up in court and making sure that survivors' experiences are understood in that way. And as we discuss understanding survivors' experience, I just wanna say thank you so much for being here, Allison, and being willing to share your experience as a survivor of violence with us and someone who's still actively involved with your case and the justice system. One of the things we know is that the system often treats survivors' needs and concerns inconsistently. And in your case, the prosecutor understood some of the nuances of the things we're talking about today. And there were at times you felt supported and times you didn't. So could you talk a little bit more about that experience and what you think is important for people to take away from this discussion about women's experiences reporting violence or going to court? Um, well, maybe I should talk a little bit first about what I am a survivor of domestic violence and um, my story because my story is very important and um, I really want to share it because I want others to know that they're not alone and to also find the courage and their voice to um, make a better life for themselves. I was married for 25 years and um, my ex-husband and I had five children together and we had a pretty good marriage for the most part you know nothing different than any other marriage uh, and until about four or five years ago where things started to change and our marriage started to decline and um nobody on the outside of our home really knew i kept it to myself and um 
and I think a lot of it were like what Alessandra was saying, you know, with the economic status or with kids involved or the value of marriage. And that's why it was important for me to continue to stay and continue to work on what I had started 20 years ago. Um, but a year and a half ago, um, on one fatal night, my husband, my ex-husband, um, did get upset about an instance and he um, grabbed me and he threw me up against the cupboards and then he slammed me down on the floor. And as he slammed me down on the floor, he grabbed a knife from the kitchen and began to stab me. I was stabbed on my hands, my arms, across my chest and my face. Um, My kids were involved. We had three kids in the home. They were all involved in the situation and came to my rescue, helping me and also um, calling 911. Um, first responders were at my home within three minutes. And I really want to give credit to that. Um, and they're helping me and saving me and getting you know the, um, what I needed. Now, it wasn't always that case. Now, previously, the police had been called to my home several times for domestic and, um, you know, walked away or didn't always listen or didn't always believe in what was happening because of the fear that I was going through or the judgment that we were going through or the protection of um, what I was wanting for my family. So, um, but this night was different and I was taken to the hospital and um, my husband was taken, my ex-husband was taken to jail. And through the past year and a half, I've been in and out of the courts. I've been in and out of uh, just a lot of different legal proceedings, not knowing really what I'm doing or understanding it. But the prosecutors who are very um, warm and compassionate and helpful, really heard me out. So, you know, in all of our different meetings, like you had said, Nasifa, um, they're just trying to understand where I'm coming from and understanding the whole bigger picture of everything. So they, they had been in other trials and they had been in other situations, but mine was different. And so they had to hear me out and they had to hear where I was coming from. And at times, there was times where I didn't feel like I was being heard just because it was unknown and unfamiliar territory for me. Um, I also had a social worker who was also really helpful too. And she was, she helped me through a lot of it and she helped me with the kids and whatnot too. Um, Alison, do you want to talk a little bit about the court experience, about actually going to court and about yeah. testifying, kind of related to what Alessandra was talking about, and then kind of your response about some of the things I testified about, but talk about actually yeah. being in court and actually testifying and what that was like. Okay, well, and my ex-husband did not take the plea deal, um, so he wanted to take it to trial, and 
we so then we had trial uh about it was almost a year and a few months later after the incident so that year of it just um being prolonged and kind of lingering was a lot for me and the kids to have to deal with and go through because well let me backtrack my kids also had to um testify in court because they were witnesses at the crime or at the scene excuse me so my kids and myself all had this like lingering for a little over a year of waiting for this trial to happen um my ex-husband had requested a non-speedy trial every time that it was scheduled which meant that he kind of got bumped i guess for other cases that came through so then it was like you know we get um that adrenaline or that um excitement that it's really going to happen this time and then it gets canceled and then we have to wait again and um then when it did finally happen at trial i was told that he was um pleading self-defense but i had no idea how or why or what was going to take place when i took the stand until i took the stand and so i think that was really really frustrating for me because i didn't know what to expect and i the um story that he had created in his mind really took me by surprise but then also you know his lawyers just drilling it and drilling it and drilling it and asking me over and over and over again you know and I, and I understand you know they were trying to break me or whatever but the story was um false so i had to be strong and i also had to relive and retell my story um and my kids had to do the same yeah so um allison can you say a little bit about um you know about the preparation for testifying about what did you have preparation for testifying and what that was like and did you see the courtroom or any of those sorts of yeah, things yeah yeah you know they did a really good job we met several times and we went we did prepare um but from my knowledge the prosecutors didn't even know what his story was they yeah, what his defense was, right? What, what his, his defense yeah, was. Exactly. Yeah. They, we, we all knew that he was pleading self-defense, but we didn't yeah. know what he was going to say until we all got there. Right. Like based on what, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Can you say a little bit about the impact of this on your children for us, Allison? Mm -hmm. um, well, like of the testifying part yeah. and what that was like. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, and not even just the testifying, you know, this is their father. This was the man, you know, that helped me raise all of our kids. Um, and it wasn't always bad, you know? So it was really hard on all five of them. Um, but they had also started seeing some different signs and some red flags through, you know, the decline of our marriage as well um but so my three kids that did have to testify were 18 17 and 9 and um my 18 year old is very strong 
um, and she was felt very prepared and ready to testify. The unfortunate part for her was she was also trying to be a freshman in college through this, which was difficult for her. And it was a relief for her to get it done. And when she had testified at trial, I remember her saying, finally, she doesn't have to talk about it anymore unless she wants to. So that was a big impact on all of us because now it's her choice to have to talk about it if she chooses and not more or less forced during a court trial. Um, my 17 year old son, um, he's really laid back and kind of easy going and he knew what he needed to do and that was to get up on the stand and tell the truth and then and walk away. I was mostly worried about my nine-year-old um, because I was worried having him see his dad in person after not seeing him for a year and a half, how he was going to handle that. Um, I couldn't be in the courtroom. Um, so I just I was listening to what other people's told other people told me afterwards that he did very well. You know, he also said what he needed to say and then he walked out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Allison, did they tell you that they were going to use an expert witness ahead of time? This is something I guess I haven't asked you. And what did you think oh. about that? Were you wondering why that had to be or? No, um, they did tell me that they wanted an expert witness. And I was also told that his lawyers tried to get that removed. Yeah. Um, and then they did, yes, also explain to me the importance of having an uh, expert witness. And after trial, when it was all done and said, I had a lot of my family and friends that were in trial every day that whole week, just really telling me how amazing um, the expert witness Melissa was and just so many of the facts that um, I was living through, that I was going through, that you knew and that you were able to share and really um, let the jury know and yeah. have a better understanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and just to clarify is that I didn't know any of those details. It just, I think what happened is I happened to explain things in close relation to how it actually happened to you is I think part of what happened. And Allison, I remember seeing your, your, I remember seeing family in the audience and I remember seeing a lot of heads nodding and I remember seeing some tears. Yeah, when, when yeah. I was testifying, yeah, yeah. yeah. Through all of this, I've had amazing support from, from family, friends, my church group. Um, so I've been very fortunate that I've had the support yeah, yeah. Alessandra, what do you hear about when you sort of hear Allison talk? And what sort of things are you thinking about, Alessandra? Um, thank you. Thank you very much, Harrison, for, for your words. And um, your words are so strong and powerful. And uh, it's always difficult to comment on a, a first-hand personal experience. I always feel inadequate. Uh, but well, just just a few words because I, I don't want to steal time for other um, other comments and questions. And I really think that um, your testimony is very precious because um, what I found talking to women who suffered um, violence from their partners is the feeling of strangeness and peculiarity of their experience, uh, not only during trial but in general. So 
the, the experience of domestic violence, we may say, is always a, an exceptional experience, uh, even if uh, it's very, um, it's very common, and uh, is always an experience of strangeness. And so, to share this awareness uh, makes women survivors more comfortable, comfortable, I believe, with themselves and uh, with others. So it takes it takes a huge weight off their shoulders, I believe. So uh, thank you very much for uh, for your. Um, for your words and uh, I, I i stop here yeah yeah thank you I, i'm also a little bit curious you know how you are now allison and would you mind sharing with the audience i know that you've talked about that you've had some permanent injury from it so can you say a little bit about that and just overall how you're doing um yes i do unfortunately have some permanent injury i i don't have much arm hand or arm strength in my left hand and um, the side of my face is numb, um, but I am still blessed and grateful because I am alive and I'm able to share my story. Um, but I'm, I'm working through a lot of that. I, um, I don't have to seek physical therapy anymore, so that's a good sign. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. And me and the kids are, we're, we're doing well. Yeah, we're doing well. Yeah, yeah, good. Uh, Allison had reached out to me actually on Facebook that after I testified, you know, I, I didn't even know who Allison was before and she reached out. So I've gotten to know Allison now. So um, it's great just to see how you're doing and how your kids are doing. Your son became homecoming king, I think, right? In St. Clouds. I know that was a big highlight for you recently and, and doing yeah, I, you something. Know I am, I am very fortunate. I have five of the most amazing kids ever. Yeah. And they are, they're actually my biggest supporters. And I will admit that probably the first six months after this tragic incident, I was at a point where I almost was tempted to call them and say, I'm okay, you can stop calling me every half hour. Um, because there is a lot of love in our, in our home and my kids are great. And they, they love me and they check on me often. And um, they're, successful as well they're doing great things so I just want to echo what I'm also reading in the chat from everyone we are so grateful to you Allison Alessandra Melissa I feel like this has been such a powerful discussion and I know we're all honored to be in this space together I think a major takeaway that we can all carry forward with us is that we have to really challenge the thinking of society. We have to change the way we advocate for safety and we need to be putting accountability on those who are causing harm rather than forcing survivors to take responsibility for being victimized. And so once again, thank you all so much. I wanna be cognizant of time here. So I'm gonna lean on my colleague, Sophia, who's been monitoring the chat through the entirety of the webinar. Sophia, do we have any questions in the chat to pose to the panelists? Yeah, there's been so many great questions. So thank you all for entering them into the chat. You can continue to do so as well. Um, I did see one question in the chat, I think from someone who works in this field um, they said, how do we get the criminal justice system on board with training? Uh, Alessandra men mentioned magistrates, everyone needing training, not just social workers. How do we do so in a way where they're not offended or they're open-minded to it? They said there's often pushback from these people because they think they're already educated or trained in this area. 
don't know if Alessandra or Melissa, go for it. Yeah, you know, when I've been asked to testify a number of times, and there's only been a couple times I haven't. And the reason why is I remember one time a judge had made a ruling. Um, I know enough about this. I don't need an expert. And the domestic violence agencies have done a fine job educating the community, and the jurors will be just finely educated. And so there is some resistance, um, for sure. And there's also this sense of you know, having done a lot of judges training about coming into it, wanting to be sort of neutral all the time and, you know, thinking they're hearing a biased sort of explanation of things. So that most certainly has been um, a, a challenge um, as well. But I would say the other thing is that we hope even beyond training that we can work to organize the rest of the system so that when the judges get the information that they get, that it's in a way that doesn't account, for example, just for Allison's incident that she experienced, but the breadth of her relationship, right? And everything that's happened um, up to that day. So that's also what we hope to do with judges, as well as to make sure that they have um, all the information besides just the incident. Alessandra, do you want to say anything just about that? Just a few words, uh, just a few words. Um, yes, there is resistance, uh, I agree with you. And, uh, but in Italy, as much as I know, uh, there is sometimes a sort of uh, enthusiastic reaction to the, the, these uh, trainings because sometimes they really reala realize that uh, there, there were so many things that they didn't take into account. So uh, at, at the end of a training, sometimes they really thank the, the people who have been uh, working on that. So I think this, I mean, it's, it's, it's a challenge, but I think it's, uh, it's very important. I do have another question. We've gotten a fair amount of questions along these lines in the chat, uh, which I think is a really important one to ask um, and is more directed towards you, Allison, um, about how can we support our friends and family members um, throughout the process, maybe before, during, and after going through the justice and the court systems? Uh, well, like I said, you know, I kept a lot of it to myself. And within my home, I didn't take it to any of really any of my friends. And but I know that some of my friends noticed red flags. I think uh, you know I know that some of my friends noticed things were different or things were changing. Um, so I would say that as a friend, you know, or a coworker, or you know, somebody that knows somebody, that if you start to notice those red flags, just be there. Um, and let them know that they're not alone or that there's resources, maybe helping them find those resources and um, not giving up on them. Thank you. Uh, I think we do have one more time. Uh, we have time for one more question. Um, one that I was also curious about too, um, but does the patriarchy play a role in how women are treated in the courts, um, especially maybe relating to credibility? Well, yes, of course. I mean, that's the, I would say the, the Alessandra and I are smiling because that's the big, right, sort of mechanism that holds us all together. And I think that in part, the way it plays out is in the thinking, right? So a judge who thinks, well, why didn't you just call the police, right? This thinking that we're all positioned in the society with the same resources, right? The same knowledge, the same access. 
when that's just not the case. And, you know, in, in a social structure where the patriarchy, you know, has most of the control and the thinking, it, it definitely has a big impact on this. Alessandra? Yes, of course, and uh, all those uh, questions that uh, recall during the trials, uh, for example, why didn't you leave uh, him? Do you still love him? And uh, could you please explain why did it something to you and et cetera? These are all <laughs> within this frame, of course. So I, I believe that uh, there is a lot of, do, uh, of work to do uh, on that for, for sure. Yeah, I think it's also tied to, you know, who has access to be a judge, for example, you know, who has, you know, the resources, the, you know, the really, you know, it, not everybody believes they can be a part of it. And that's in part what the patriarchy wants, is they want it to be, you know, a certain type of person who's in that position for sure. I think that it's also important to, to know the background story too. You know, this yeah. was this was my husband of 25 years, and it wasn't always like this. You know, this just started happening the last few years. So I didn't want to leave or I didn't want, you know, to end the marriage because there was a back history of memories and a, a life that we had built together. And I had always hoped that change was going to come or that things were going to go back to the way that they were. And so I was holding on to something that just wasn't there anymore. But unfortunately, um, now I know, but, <laughs> but I think that knowing the backstory of, you know, what women are going through or what, where their life is at is important too. Yeah. I, I appreciate you all so much. I think the questions and the answers here today have been so insightful and thought provoking. And so I, I just wanna thank our guests for talking to us today. And I also wanna thank our participants for being here. I'd also really like to thank my colleague, Sophia Morissette for ensuring that this conversation went smoothly on the question side and the tech side as well. We've also included links in the chat to learn more. So if you'd like to support Global Rights for Women, your contribution goes to supporting the work of advocates around the globe, centering survivors' voices as the means to achieving systemic change. You'll also receive an email in the next few days with resources, as well as a link to the recording so you can view it later. Once again, thank you all so much for being here. And it was an absolute honor to share this space with you all. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Valiant Voices. We hope you were able to take away something meaningful from our conversation. If you'd like to learn more about our organization, Global Rights for Women, and how you can be part of the movement to end violence against women and girls, please visit our website, globalrightsforwomen.org. And thank you.